Nor in scripture is there born a more powerful testimony of the Savior than in Isaiah chapter 53. How then is it that there are other interpretations for the meaning of this scripture? We'll discuss that question and many others. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. to episode 39 of Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is How Beautiful Upon the Mountains. We're covering Isaiah chapters 50 through 53. As always, should you like to email the program, please get in touch with me at gt at The lead-in music we had today, that was taken from the Toronto Symphony's uh, production of Handel's Messiah. We'll We'll have a number of excerpts from Handel's Messiah, and we'll keep those short. I have to keep those short in order to fall inside of fair use laws. But uh, today probably is is probably the lesson where we have more scriptures that we'll cover that were set to music by Handel than any other. So we'll discuss a few of those. And the Messiah happens to be my favorite piece of music. What we led in with was "All We Like Sheep" from Andrew Davis conducting the Toronto Symphony, and. It's an, an example of what uh, Handel used to do quite quite frequently, which is called word painting, where he would take the, the words of the scripture, the words that he was setting to music, and he would reflect those words in the music itself. So if you if you uh, were listening, the, the voices, the different voices in the choir go in different directions, and the message of the words is, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've, we've turned each one to, a, to his own way. So kind of a fascinating technique used by Handel there. And also um, in the Messiah, we won't we won't play this for you today because it actually was included in last week's lesson, but chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 4, is every valley shall be exalted, and that's number three in the Messiah. And in that, uh, that's one of the most famous examples of word painting because the soloist is going from highs to lows and saying every valley shall be exalted and uh, and then when he talks about the rough places being made plain, then he sings a, a single note, sustained. Very fascinating and uh, very inspiring. So we'll, we'll discuss other, other excerpts and other tracks from Handel's Messiah as we go along. Some of those will be taken from the, and, and I'll mention where they're taken from. Some will be taken from the Toronto Symphony, and some will be taken from the version that the Mormon Tabernacle Choir did just a couple of years ago. Those are my two favorite versions. I call them the Mormon Tabernacle Choir purposely. That That is how you will, if you want to buy it, I recommend it highly. Uh, that is what you'll find the artist name under, not the newly renamed uh, Tabernacle Choir Temple Square, or Tab Cats, as you can uh, abbreviate it. So Isaiah chapters 50 through 53. Now we begin in Isaiah chapter 50. And uh, one thing I want to stress to you is that you can understand these chapters. As I have said many times, um, it, it is very helpful to read another translation in addition to the King James Version. I don't recommend that you skip the King James Version entirely because there are things included in the King James Version, metaphors and imagery, that no other version captures quite as faithfully. Um, but if, if we start in... Isaiah chapter 53, one thing I want to bring to your attention, or I'm sorry, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 50, 
one thing I want to bring to your attention right at the start. Here is the, here's a question that God asks. So chapter 50, verse 1, thus saith the Lord. So a lot of times when you, uh, when a prophet, and especially Isaiah, was fond of using this phrase, or Yahweh says, as it, as, as it was originally written in Hebrew, Yahweh says means, uh, oftentimes it was a warning, look, I'm not speaking for myself anymore. This is, these are God's words that I'm relaying faithfully. That was Isaiah's way of signaling that. But also it was his way of putting quotation marks around what is to follow. So sometimes you can, and, and this goes along with our idea of the antecedents, right? You will hear um, the words I and my and you, and you can know if it follows, thus saith the Lord, you can know that the I and the my, the antecedent of those pronouns is Yahweh. Otherwise, you have to kind of guess at what it might be. Well, uh, as we as we go along, we will read these verse. We will read these chapters, and especially chapters fifty-two and fifty-three. We'll read them twice. So the first uh, perspective that I'm going to give you is the Jewish perspective, and this means not only the ancient Jewish perspective, the way that the readers, the original readers of Isaiah, would have read it. Also, the Jewish readers at the time when these things were being first fulfilled, which is during 150 years after Isaiah, during the Babylonian exile. So Isaiah lived during the time of Hezekiah. He had some readers then. Then 150 years later, the Jews would have read Isaiah's works and said, wow, all this stuff is coming true, exactly what Isaiah said. So he had readers then. And we... We're going to read through this once and kind of understand what they would have taken it. So, in other words, uh, we're going to read this from what I would call the first and second antecedent. And if you don't know what the six antecedents of Isaiah are, you can review our earlier episode. But the first and second are the, the surface people that Isaiah is talking to and talking about, and then the Jewish people as a whole. And in this case, they're exactly the same, because... Isaiah is talking not only about the people of his own time, but he's talking specifically about Jewish history. So that's the surface level that we're going to read it on. And we're going to come face to face or be exposed to an idea that is common throughout Isaiah, the idea of the suffering servant. Who is the servant of God that Isaiah talks so much about? And the perspective of the Jewish people is we, we're the servant. Now, if you remember, we've been talking since we talked about about the Abrahamic covenant, which was introduced in Genesis chapter 12. We've been talking about the idea that the descendants of Abraham are called upon to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as Moses put it, or a light unto the Gentiles. And as God said to Abraham, in, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. In other words, the Jews see themselves, at, themselves as, a, as a means that God will use to show the world what it's like to worship God. It's a very holy calling to them, and, and it should be. It's, it's their particular place in the world. And because of this place they have in the world, they are often put upon and rejected and, and ridiculed and mocked and all of these terrible things that would happen to someone who is trying to hold those around them up to a higher standard. And this persecution extends all the way to murder and genocide. In fact, even today... Coincidentally, my heart is breaking for the people involved in this shooting in a synagogue in Pennsylvania, people targeted specifically for being Jews. Now, Jews are not, religious persecution is not unique to the Jews, but they have certainly received more than their fair share 
over the centuries. And it's certainly a reasonable conclusion to draw that the Jews themselves are the suffering servant of Isaiah. So that's perspective number one. We're going to read, uh, so we'll start in chapter 50, verse 1. Now, um, one thing I was going to bring to your attention here is when you see a question put uh, almost like a hypothetical or rhetorical question in the King James Version put without a without a real answer, um, it, it's often more helpful to interpret that a little bit differently. So I'll read you this verse, then we'll talk about uh, a good way to interpret it. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And right away, we're a little confused. What is he talking about? What, why would he put our mother away? What, what creditors is he talking about? So the Lord, or Isaiah, in the Lord's voice, is making a metaphor that you're my children, and you think I must have divorced your mother so that I could disown you as my children. And so the question I'm asking you, I, God, am asking you, Israelites, then where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? So when you see a question like that, where is or who is or which is the which is the thing and there's no answer the implication is that i'm telling you there's nothing that would fit that description or let me put it another way this is from the good news translation do you think i sent my people away like a man who divorces his wife where then are the papers of divorce so when he says where are the papers of divorce he's saying no such papers exist and again, we have another question. Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And the way the Good News translation renders this is, do you think I sold you into captivity like a man who sells his children as slaves? So in other words, there is no, there is no creditor that fits this description. I haven't sold you. So when you read these questions, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? The implication is, you think, why do you think I've divorced your mother and put you away? Why do you think I've disowned you? Where, where then is the bill of your mother's div, uh, divorcement? Do you think I've sold you into slavery? Where then is the creditor that I've sold you to? And then he answers the question, Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So in other words, I haven't done this, you've done this. So the when you see these questions asked in this way, it, it's an implication that no such thing, person, or place exists. So you see where is, who is, what is. Uh, and if there's no immediate answer forthcoming, then you can know the, the writer of the scripture is implying that that thing does not exist. Well, chapter 50 is expressing the idea of the suffering servant. And in, if you skip forward to chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 6, we're in chapter 50. Um, then the, the servant starts talking. Uh, in verse 4, actually, the servant starts talking. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned so that I can know how to teach people, that I know exactly what to say, and every day he wakes me up and teaches me more, and he's opened my heart and my ears, and I wasn't rebellious. So this is the suffering servant Israel when they have turned faithful. Is, you know, Jews would see this as a description of them in their future state once, once God performs his marvelous work and a wonder upon them and they change. And if they can be faithful enough, these are the, this is the way that they will speak. I gave, and here in verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For, and so you can see that Isaiah is foretelling the humble state of the Jews throughout history. They're going to be consistently 
uh, as as uh, the scriptures put it in other places, a hiss and a byword. They're going to be mistreated, rejected, enslaved, driven out. And the amazing thing is not that the Jews have had this happen to them so many times. If you were to look on human history, it is a history of suffering and enslavement and one group going to war against another group constantly. The amazing thing is that the Jews have survived as a people and had a consistent identity long enough that they have so many of these stories to tell. And the latest of which, or the most serious of which would come into most people people's minds is the Holocaust during World War II. But that may not have been the worst, at least in percentage, surely in absolute numbers it was, but in percentage of the number of Jews mistreated, the Assyrian conquest would have been far worse. The uh, And then the Babylonians carrying them away into captivity would have been completely horrible. They were killed and enslaved and, and marched off into a foreign land. So it's, it's not that, but any people, I mean, you and I don't get upset about the Romans conquering the Carthaginians, right? We don't care about that. We don't have any feelings about that. But the Jews, because they preserved their identity for thousands of years, they look back on these events from thousands of years ago and they have feelings about them. And they say, these, these, this was us. This has happened to us throughout history. So they've preserved, because they preserved the memory of these events and preserved the identity, we're Jews today, those were Jews then, therefore this happened to us. Then they can also benefit from hearing these scriptures talking about them. So this uh, idea of the suffering servant, as you, as you can see, as we read more of these verses, you will see that the foretelling or the metaphor has been fulfilled in many different ways as it applies to the Jewish people. And certainly the Jews have given their back to the smiters and their cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, right? They, they have been the subject of shame and ridicule for God's sake. The Jews could have given up their identity as Jews and, say, and said, we, don't, we no longer worship the, or read the Torah. We no longer worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And they would have ceased to be mistreated. They would have blended in. And doubtless that has happened to some Jews throughout history. But uh, the history of the Jews that has survived, the Jews who, who remain Jews, is that of them being mistreated and driven out um, many times. Not all the time, but, but quite often. So let's continue discussing what the way that they would read, the way that they would have received this at the time of Isaiah and the way that they would read this, they would want to read this today. And I hope I'm representing it faithfully. I've read a fair amount on, on how the Jews look at these chapters because we see them as messianic chapters. But... Um, if the Jews see them as messianic, it is a, mess, a Messiah who's still to come, obviously. So continuing in chapter 50, it's not a long chapter. You can see that the servant is saying in verse 9, Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? And again, uh, implying no such person exists. Because God is helping me, no one will condemn me. Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment, the moth shall eat them up. So everyone else is fleeting. Who among you, who is among you that feareth the Lord, that avoideth the voice of his servant? And the Isaiah is speaking not only of himself as a prophet, but of all the people of Israel as the, as the priests to the rest of the world. That obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. 
Behold, all ye that kindle a fire that compass yourselves round about with sparks. Uh, and then in the final verse of the chapter is talking about those who trust in your own strength and you and you you're going to light a fire against your enemies. You're going to be burned up in your own fire. All of the the schemes that you originate to get your own way in the world, to make things happen the way you think they should happen, they, those schemes will redound to your torment. So it's talking about the, the, this first chapter of our lesson, chapter 50, is talking about how permanent God's salvation is and how temporary and fleeting are the, the works of man and the desires of man. And so it's a, it's a call to the Jews, remember God, be the suffering servant rather than the, the, the Israel that was carried away into captivity. So if we continue that same, and another point I want to make is Isaiah did not originate the chapter breaks that we have today. And so when we continue from chapter 50 to 51, that's an artificial or you might say a, uh, an imposed break, and it, it doesn't necessarily reflect what was on Isaiah's mind. So he's continuing the same idea. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. So just a couple of verses ago, he said, those who are in walking in darkness but are listening to the servant, then you can know God is on your side. He's going to uphold you. And if you don't do that, you're going to be like a, a garment the moth has eaten up. We're going to go back a little bit. Chapter 50, verse 2, I'll just read it quickly. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I was called, when I called, there was none to answer. Is my hand shortened? This is God speaking again. Is my hand shortened at all? Or no, my hand, by hand, God means my power. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for, for, for thirst. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about this metaphor of the sea. If you listen to our lesson on Jonah, you'll remember we talked a little bit about the god Enki, also um, known as E, spelled E-A. This was the Sumerian god of the deep or the underworld, the waters that are found under the earth. And if you remember that Jonah, when he was swallowed by a fish, he was carried to the, to the god of the underworld. Basically, he went from the mountains of Ephraim to the bottom of the sea, as close to God and as far away as you can get. So this brings up, if you if you remember that metaphor or that that imagery, this this is the beliefs or these are the mythologies that surrounded Israel even during this time, even captive in Babylon, the Babylon the Babylonians believed uh, in Enki. Enki was a, a belief that had already existed for hundreds, if not thousands, of years during the Babylonian captivity, and the center of the worship of Enki was found in modern-day Iraq, which was part of Babylon. And so when God is saying, I can dry up the sea, what he's saying is you, there's, no death, there's no death, there's no pit that is so far down that I can't find you and redeem you. So here we are in uh, chapter 51. And the first several verses of chapter 51 are talking about how God's power is going to redeem Israel, you're going to be happy, talking about, again, the uh, the temporary nature of the enemies that surround you and the permanent nature of the salvation that's coming. And then in verse 9, we see again, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Now, if you read this without any background, you're going to think, what is going on here? So um, these ancient 
the ancient pagan cults that surrounded Israel, they worshiped, they each had their own creation myth. And oftentimes there was a God that held the place very similar to Yahweh, the, the king of the gods, the creator of the earth. And usually there was some sort of monumental struggle in the creation. Um, and this is over and over again. It's, you, if you've studied mythology at all, uh, in order to cre either create people or to create the earth, the, the first god had to slay some giant beast and then carve up the earth out of his bones. This is quite a common thing. And then the sea is his blood. And so Rahab is one of the, um, is a monster. It's one of the henchmen of the evil gods in the, in the Babylonian pantheon. And so the, Isaiah is saying, you're the god who subdued the, the forces of chaos and created the earth. You extended your power over everything, and there was nothing that could stand in your way. So wounded the dragon is another, is another way of saying that same thing. If you remember in Job, he talks about Leviathan and the fact that God has, when God commands, even the mighty monsters of the deep, in other words, these, these monsters that you've heard about in the uh, mythologies that surround you, to, to God, they're nothing. That They're super powerful, and, and they represent the forces of chaos that man, the, the huge, irresistible power of nature that man can have no strength against at all. And to God, those things are as nothing. And so that's this is a continuation of that idea. So I wanted to bring that up because it's interesting now again in verse 15. When God divided the Red Sea, this is a clear reference to the Exodus, but it's also a reference to something else. So chapter 51, verse 15, I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose, wa whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. So when Isaiah talks about God dividing the sea, uh, and in verse 10 you can see, Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? So the one of the deepest and most fundamentally believed ideas of God was that he was so powerful that even the mighty ocean listened to his every command. And the ocean which represented death and the depths of which were the underworld. He's talking about making a path for the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. But he's also saying you dried up the sea all the way down to the bottom. God could penetrate, his power could penetrate even that far. And he could redeem that and make that not only not see anymore, not death anymore, but it's a, it's a pathway for the ransom to pass over. So Isaiah is at once not only talking about the, the mighty things that God has done for previous generations, but he's saying God has all power over not only the forces of death and the, he's more powerful than the other gods that surround you, but he will eventually redeem Israel from, and his servants from death itself. God is more powerful than all of nature and death. So this is a, a very poetic way to express this idea that Yahweh is powerful enough to penetrate all the powers of the forces that, that might bring fear and specifically to redeem man from, from death. And death and sin were the same thing, right? God, God in instituting the temple rites and having the Israelites put blood on the altars and cause the death of these animals and then feast on them. He was saying uh, sin and, and, and put their sins into the animals and then slay them. That was a way of saying sin and death are the same thing. So that would have been an idea very familiar to the Israelites. So they were understanding from this, God is more powerful than sin and death. He can redeem you from both. 
So when you see the, when you see discussion about the great deeps, then in the scriptures, then you can know this is a, it probably was a conscious effort on the part of the prophet writing it to say God is more powerful than all of these things. And it's also very consciously referred to in the New Testament stories of Jesus calming the ocean. This was a power reserved to God himself, was the power over the waters and the power is over the great deep. So Jesus walking across the water and then entering in the boat and immediately the waves are calm. Or Jesus sleeping on the boat and the disciples saying, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? And he raises his hand and says, peace be still. And immediately the ocean or the, he was on the Sea of Galilee, but the, the lake is calm, the winds are calm, the weather is calm. And they say, what manner of man is this? Their question is, can he be a man if he, if he calms the waters, if he has power over the very elements themselves? Because that is a power that we understand to be reserved for God. And these were, uh, these were common beliefs. They surrounded the entire ancient Near East. And so this would have been the culture, the milieu in which uh, all of these people were steeped from birth. Isaiah further develops the, this idea of the suffering servant. Awake, awake, in verse 17, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken on the dregs of the cup of trembling. And basically trembling is staggering or spinning around. And the dregs are the bitter bottom of a cup of wine, this sediment that collects in the bottom of a cup that doesn't taste very good. So, you you know, you think you want to drink something good, but you don't want to drink it to the very dregs. But you've drunk every drop, Israel, of the cup of God's wrath. And that idea continues for the next several verses. And then in verse 22, Thus saith the, thy Lord, the Lord, or the, thy Lord Yahweh, and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of this people, Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee. So this is Isaiah's promise, God's promise, that you've been suffering up until this point. You're my suffering servant, but you won't suffer forever. So eventually the people that have been afflicting you will receive this cup and they'll have to drink it. This is an important idea. We're going to talk about exactly why. But first, before we leave chapter 51, there's one more idea I want to express, which is that of Abraham and Sarah. So in verse 2, God says, Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you, for I called him alone. Meaning, I called Abraham when he was desolate in his old age. He was alone with no children. And I blessed him and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden. And he continues in that same vein. But in other words, look at what I did for Abraham. It would have seemed impossible to him that he could have children and increase at that late, and Sarah also, at that late age. Look at how I made his family to prosper. So you look around you and you see all these waste places and you think there's no hope for us. And, and God is using Abraham as an object lesson to say, I'm going to do the same thing for you that I did for Abraham, which is redeem you from this barrenness and the desolation that you feel. I will make you prosperous. So it's a mighty promise there in Isaiah 51. And so now we're in Isaiah 52. And uh, the, these are the chapters that we'll read twice, or at least we'll consider twice. But it's a continuation of the same idea. And, and again, there's no chapter break in the original. So shake yourself from the dust in verse 2. Wake up, Israel, 
why don't you? And stop being, stop being the wicked people that have that got yourselves into this problem, and start being the servant that I know you can be. And uh, in verse four, for thus saith the Lord, my people went down into Egypt, and they were they went of their own free will. He's now he's talking about how they're going to be redeemed without money. In verse three, in verse four, he's saying the Assyrians took you away by force. You went into Egypt of your own choice. And so with no money were you given away, and I'm going to redeem you without money. Now, therefore, in verse 5, What have I here, saith the Lord? My people is taken away for naught. They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name is blasphemed every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. There, behold, it is I. And now the verse that gave our lesson its name how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, that God reigneth. We mentioned last week, we talked a little bit about the word gospel. And when you see good tidings, uh, this is again the the place where the, the idea where we got the word gospel from. Now, something interesting about the word gospel, uh, it's been translated into English most frequently as good news. And if you look at the Hebrew, the actual word is mebaser, which means, or mebaser, which means messenger of good tidings. So the messenger is not separated from the message. And in fact, there is no word for good. It's just, it's the, the only way you can be this kind of mebaser is if you are a messenger of good tidings. There's another word for anybody who brings any other kind of news. But this is a person who publishes who publisheth peace, right? It's somebody who only can bring good news. And if you bring good news, then you are this kind of messenger. And Jesus was given the same title in the New Testament. And in Greek, it was translated as evangelium. So this is where we get our word angel from. So angel is a, an, an E-V or ev or E-U is uh, a word meaning good. So this good messenger, a good angel it, it's the same idea. So a lot of times we think of um, the, the good news being the gospel itself. And yet in Isaiah 52 verse 7, he's talking about the messenger more than the message. I'm going to read the English. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. So the phrase him that bringeth good tidings, all of that in Hebrew is one word. And then again, you see it when he says that bringeth good tidings, actually in Hebrew, it would have been rendered him that bringeth good tidings again. So it talks about the messenger twice in this verse. We'll discuss exactly why it's so important that the messenger and not the message is the focus in just a bit. But in our initial reading, it's enough to say that now God has been talking about all the suffering that the, the servant is going through. Look, you've been a you've been a long suffering servant. You've been very patient. You've allowed people to pull the hair out of your beard and spit on your face without resistance, without opening up your mouth. And now is when the salvation is going to begin. So, so look what happens. Here comes a messenger. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet. And I don't know, this is just an idea of mine. I don't know whether this was on Isaiah's mind, but in, in my experiences in the Middle East, one of the most offensive things you can do is to show the bottom of your foot. And uh, anything regarding feet whatsoever uh, is, uh, is offensive or considered base or dirty. And uh, you saw this idea. I don't know if, 
If you remember in the news when George Bush was pulling some troops out of Iraq and there was a news conference that he had and this reporter who hated the Americans got into the got access into this news conference and then uh, he decided that it was worth whatever consequences he might have and he pulled off his shoes and he said this is the final insult you dog and he threw his shoes at, at the president and for and he became a, a hero to those who hated our president uh, in his country because to throw your shoes at somebody was considered to be something you would only do to somebody who was beneath contempt and in the scriptures you find this idea when Moses was called to look at the burning bush, you know, Moses come here and Moses saw that the bush wasn't consumed. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and pay attention to this thing. And then the voice of Yahweh spoke to him out of the bush and said, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. So there is some support for this idea that the bottom of the feet somehow pollute the ground, even the ground you walk on or is offensive to the, the, the bottom of your feet are the most offensive place. And Moses was a sheep herder, right? What is he walking in all day? Uh, and so God wanted Moses to have a little more respect for the ground he was on than that. To me, that's what Isaiah is trying to communicate in this verse. How beautiful upon the mountains. Not only is the, the message that this messenger is bringing, not only is the wonderful look on his face as he runs towards us to, to share the good news with us, but even the bottom of his feet, the foulest part of a person, is a beautiful thing on the mountains because of the power of the message he's bringing. And what is the message? Thy God reigneth. Okay, so this is the message the Jews have been waiting forever. And obviously God has been reigning the whole time. So what, it, what does it really mean to say thy God reigneth? It means now God is choosing to make his will visible. It's going to be no longer hidden that God is with you, but it's going to, everyone will be able to see it. Your God is now in charge. That's the good news of the gospel. That's that's where this verse and a couple of other verses in Isaiah is where the word gospel comes from. And this is the good news that God reigneth. Uh, earlier we saw last week, we saw uh, behold your God. And then next week we'll talk about uh, one other verse that contains the phrase good tidings. So these are the messages that contain the gospel, which is behold your God and thy God reigneth. God is in charge. That's the good news. So you're no longer going to be the suffering servant, but now you're going to be the blessed. And the and the cup of the, this cup of dregs, which you've been drinking, is going to be given to those who've been oppressing you. So that's an important idea, you know. And then the rest of the chapter is rejoice, you know, all the rejoicing that you have to do. You're not going to you're going to be able to leave. You know, you suffered from Egypt, you suffered from Assyria, but when you go out of Babylon, you're going to go out slowly. You don't have to escape anymore because God is now in charge, and you can go out as slowly as you want because he's protecting you all around. So that's the idea of the rest of chapter 52. And then at the end, you see this idea again, the servant is suffering and now he'll be exalted. So verse 15, uh, 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at the, his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. In other words, he almost didn't look human in how much he was uh, disfigured and how much he was mistreated. He, um, he had been beaten to the point of not even looking like a person anymore. And uh, here's a, a verse that is often misunderstood. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, the word sprinkle 
can mean to spurt or sprinkle, like when someone is uh, chopped with a sword and their blood spurts out. That's the same word here. Uh, but it also means to surprise it, or to leap as if in surprise. Sorry. So it, it can mean to leap up. Uh, and I don't know, those of you who remember our discussion on the meaning of the name of God, Yahweh, you'll remember we talked about how there's a there's a particular stem in Hebrew that is causative. So it's the same word, but instead of meaning, for example, in, in the case of Yahweh, instead of meaning he is, it means he causes to be. And uh, this is the same stem, the same hiphal stem, the word for sprinkle. So shall he cause, and, and so another way you could translate this is, so shall he cause many nations to leap, to leap out of their chair, basically, because they're so surprised. So uh, that, that is how I would render this verse when it says sprinkle. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. So here's where a, couple, a few of the ideas we've been talking about show their importance. Number one, this idea of the cup of the wrath of God that the Jews have been drinking are going to be given to those that have been oppressing him. So when you read uh, the nations, the kings, you, you can read the, the those who have been oppressing the Jews throughout history. And as this cup is taken out of the lips of the uh, suffering servant and given to those who have been oppressing him, these kings are no longer, they don't have anything to say to the servant because what did the servant look like? In verse 14, his visage was so marred, he didn't even look human. And now the cup of his suffering is being taken away and given to these kings. And they never, they, they leap out of surprise because they never would have expected anything like that. Now, when we go into chapter 53, we're just continuing right along. There's, there's no break in the, Isaiah's original thought. So, um, and that's important because now we don't know who's talking. If you just read chapter 53, you think, all right, um, who hath believed our report? And this, again, it's the problem of the antecedents. Who is the antecedent of the pronoun our? We don't know. If you look at the end of the last chapter, these kings have just considered something. They're, they're considering something they've never thought of before, which is that this servant who was so contemptible is now somebody worth looking at. And they're now having to see how much suffering they've caused. And so these kings are talking, in my opinion, this is not clear, and you've, if you read a number of translations of chapter 53, you'll see it's uh, it's interpreted in a number of different ways. So it's not exactly clear who's talking right here. My own interpretation is these kings are talking, or the nations that have been oppressing Israel. Who hath believed our report? And again, here's the idea that when you ask a question of who, and no one is, there's no answer given, the implication is that such a person does not exist. So these kings are saying, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? So these kings see now the kings of the earth, the nations that have been oppressing Israel. They're considering something, which is that there's more to this Israel than meets the eye. And they're saying, Who could possibly believe this? No one. And who could see the power of God in this? Nobody would have seen that. Nobody we, we have now a new thing to report, which is we're witnessing that Israel is actually the favored nation of God. Who would have believed that? And who could have seen God's hand in that? In my opinion, that's the meaning of this verse. Then in verse 2, For he shall grow up before him, the servant shall grow up before God, 
again, the, this, this is an interesting question of the antecedents. You have to decide what these antecedents mean because these are present in the original Hebrew. So it's only if you go back far enough and read verses or chapters 52 and 53 as a continuous passage do you see what it might what the interpretation might be but this servant shall grow up before God as a tender plant as a root out of dry ground in other words there's no this isn't a fertile field that the tender plant is growing up and it's a beautiful plant but it's growing up out of dry ground out of nothing and as God said I can take your waste places just like I did with Abraham and I can turn them into something that looks like Eden and these kings, now it's saying that the kings are going to see this. The people who have been oppressing Israel are going to see how blessed they are in, in verse 2. Like a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So continuing again, the same idea that the he was disfigured, he, he was marred beyond, so it didn't even look human. And so now we're having to consider something. Who would have believed that? So... The last several verses that we've been reading are all their exclamations of surprise. And in fact, this entire chapter, I think, is in the verse or in the voice of these these kings and rulers of the nations that surround Israel. Everyone who all the Gentiles who are observing the work that God will perform with the nation of Israel uh, are are saying all of these things except for the very last verse. So let's read it in that perspective. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So we're now having to drink this cup of wrath that we've been making the Jews drink for all these centuries, and now we're drinking it, and we see he's been carrying our griefs. He's been bearing our sorrows. But he was wounded, in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. So now that we're having to drink this cup of the wrath of God, we're seeing all of the things that the Jews were suffering, they were doing it because they were refusing to give up their worship of Yahweh. And now that we are all accepting Yahweh, that they're, that the work of God is finally progressing and the purposes of God are being fulfilled and the, and the reasons for which God made the Jews a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they're all being completed. Now we can see that they were bearing these things for us. And, and they're using the, the singular because uh, the, this metaphor of the servant is a single person. But they're talking about the whole nation of Israel. All we like sheep, all we kings of the earth, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, on Israel, the iniquity of all of us. Because they're the only persons who were be- willing to believe in Yahweh while we were all uh, so... Firm, firmly decided to have our own way. And uh, so, you know, you can read the rest of these as the, in verse 7, he was oppressed, he, he opened not his mouth. So the Jews were patient and they dealt with all of their oppression for centuries without fighting back, you might say, or without having their own, you know, you, you don't hear about Jews oppressing other people. Uh, what you hear about is them bearing it patiently and going from nation to nation looking for a home. And Finally, in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And and seed is another word for offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So here's the the kings of the earth, the nations who have been oppressing Israel. They're finally seeing 
the Jews never died. They never went away. They've, they've had a greater longevity than any other people. And now they're seeing all the posterity that they have. And now we can see, and everyone can see, the arm of the Lord is revealed. And we can see that, that God's blessings have been upon this people all along. So this is the message as, as it would have been received in Isaiah's time. And 150 years after Isaiah, it would have been, this would have been a very comforting chapter for the Jews in Babylonian captivity to read. They would have thought, wow, God has not forgotten us and he can see our suffering. And look, Isaiah has said that as much as we're suffering, everyone else around us is going to recognize that at some point they'll be the ones suffering and we'll be the ones who don't have to even escape in, in haste. We can walk out slowly and be honored. And then finally, in the, in the last verse, it's God speaking. Therefore will I divide him, the servant, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, all the good things of the earth, any, everything that the, these kings have enjoyed previously, earthly power, wealth, uh, acclaim, that my servant is now going to enjoy these things, but he's going to enjoy them because he's earned them instead of having come about them through evil means or through coercion. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, as, as God puts it, and as Isaiah puts it. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now this is, an, this is a, a reference to the temple worship of the Jews, where they put the sin, and uncertain of their sacrifices, they put the sin of the whole world. On the Day of Atonement, they put the sin of the whole world on these animals and then either set them free, the scapegoat to run into the wilderness, or uh, took the lamb without blemish and sacrificed it on the altar. So this is the way in which they're making intercession for the, for the transgressors. Why is that important that we read this in this way? Uh, we, need to, we need to understand that, first of all, there's more than one way to look at these scriptures and, and uh, the, our Jewish friends, our Jewish brethren and sisters are not wrong to think that God has not forgotten them and that they have wonder, wonderful, amazing promises extended to them in the book of Isaiah. Many, many Christians use Isaiah chapter 53 to try to convert Jews, and, uh, and Jews often look at it, if they're less learned, they look at it and say, oh, yeah, you're right, this does seem to be talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, and then their rabbis will say, look, there's a, there's a perfectly obvious interpretation for these chapters, and then they'll give them the interpretation that we've just gone through. Now, how do we know that there's more to it than that? Um, luckily for us, we have an inspired commentary on Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, found in the book of Mosiah, of all places. So uh, Abinadi, a prophet of the time of the wicked king Noah, is called by God to show up among the people of King Noah and, and proclaim unto them their wickedness. And eventually the king the king wanted to live in more wickedness than anyone else and so in order to empower him and enable him to do that he surrounded himself as we've discussed before with all these wicked priests and they couldn't very well be teaching the people to be righteous when they could see all the terrible things the rulers were doing so they were teaching them iniquity so they have this this uh evil and failure to worship god that comes from the top down throughout the entire land so obviously, God is going to call somebody to, to let them know, hey, you can't do this forever and continue to be blessed by me and protected. And 
Abinadi's teachings are not popular, and he's eventually brought before the king. The king says, you've got to stop. You've got to shut up. You you can't keep saying the things that you're saying. And <clears throat> the first tactic that they take with uh, Abinadi is to try to confuse him. And this is, in, in these chapters, we're going to start in Mosiah chapter 12. Uh, the lesson talks about Mosiah 13 and 14, I believe. But I would say we're going you would want to go all the way from Mosiah 12 through Mosiah 16. You'd want to read those chapters. So the first thing they do is they start questioning Abinadi. And in verse 21, they ask him the very verses from Isaiah chapter 52. They say, what is one, one of the priests of Noah, in order to confuse Abinadi, says, all right, I've got a question for you. Here's something we've been struggling with. What do these verses mean? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them which uh, are the feet of him that bringeth good news, bringeth good tidings. And um, it's interesting that Abinadi doesn't even say, you know, this is the suffering servant uh, that represents the people of Israel. And this is uh, an image of when they go, the beginning of the time when they go from being suffering to where God lays bare his holy arm, in other words, shows his power to all the nations and everyone can see the salvation right? Abinadi doesn't talk about any of that stuff. So the first thing Abinadi does, and I think it's it's really amazing, is he says, uh, he, he quotes, he knew the scripture so well that he immediately quotes all 10 of the, uh, he, he recites from memory the, all 10 and all of the surrounding verses of the 10 commandments. And he says, wait, are you priests and you, and you don't know what this means? How can you not know what this means? Every prophet has spoken of this. Have, have you not taught the people the Ten Commandments? And then he quotes those. And then in the next chapter, after a brief interruption, he keeps he keeps quoting those. And he said, now, what do you think? So have you taught the people to do those? No, you haven't taught the people the Ten Commandments at all. But there's something more that I need to tell you, which is the Ten Commandments are only a representation of this law that the the people of Israel had to live because they were so stiff-necked. And because they couldn't quite grasp the higher law, they were given this law of Moses. But do you think salvation comes from the law of Moses? And the priests say, well, yeah, we do. So now we're in Mosiah chapter 13, and Abinadi in verse 28 says, Moreover, I say unto you, salvation doth not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement, which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, that they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. So they've talked about Isaiah chapter 52, they've asked him about that. And he says, you think that salvation comes by the law of Moses? I'm going to show you. In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, I'm going to show you exactly how we know that it doesn't. And so verse 28 is the first place where he gives that indication. Then at the end of chapter uh, 13 of Mosiah, Abinadi says, um, he's talking about all of the prophets who've ever spoken. And he says, have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men? In other words, here's the good news. Behold your God, right? All the prophets are saying God himself shall come down. And here's Mosiah confirming that's the good news. These are the good tidings. Verse 34, have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? Yea, and have they not said also that he should bring to pass the resurrection of the dead and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted. And as proof of this statement, then 
Abinadi begins to discuss chapters 52 and 53. And now, just because I want to, uh, I'll play another excerpt from the Messiah. Again, the Andrew Davis conducted version of the Toronto Symphony. Uh, he was despised. This is number 23. It's a solo from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. And I'm sorry that's so short. I recommend you all to go out and purchase these these CDs that we're playing the music from. The, these are all right in a row. There are five scriptures that gave inspiration to Handel to set them to music right in a row. Um, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 53. This is from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir recording. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Surely, surely he hath from chapter 53, verse 5, and with his stripes we are healed. you remember we we led in today's show with all we like sheep that's from chapter 53 verse 6 all of these have the all of these were right in a row it's such a powerful testimony of everything that jesus did for us how he was despised and as abinadi said it was prophesied that he should be oppressed and afflicted this is a, a this is a personal opinion and it's also a personal statement but i think and i i can't imagine a situation where this would be true but i think if for some strange reason, you were in a position where, you know, you were on a spaceship or you were going on a um, an exodus or a trip across the plains or whatever. You could only bring five chapters of the scriptures with you. In my personal opinion, if you ever had that choice, these would be the chapters. If, if it were my choice, these would be the chapters I would bring. It would be mo- even more than the New Testament would be Mosiah chapters 12 through 16. They're that powerful. And, be, and the reason is there is no more powerful... Like I said at the beginning, there's no more powerful testimony of Jesus than exists in Isaiah 53, but it's only, uh, or I should say, it's it's understood to its fullest only in the Book of Mormon and not even in the Bible, because the Bible is the scripture is the scripture for so many different sets of beliefs um, that it's not even clear that it's talking about Jesus, and it's possible to take a completely different interpretation from it. And here is... Abinadi about to launch into one of the most powerful discourses on the atonement and upon Jesus of Nazareth that has ever been offered. 
So that was chapter Mosiah 50, uh, sorry, Mosiah chapter 13. Then chapter 14 is a straight across quote of Isaiah 53. And then in chapter 15, Abinadi continues. And he says, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And then he talks about why Jesus Christ is both the Father and the Son. And then he says, he's going to be tormented in all these ways. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to break the bands of death. Remember we talked about how Isaiah was, all this figurative language about the deeps and the, the sea and drying up the ocean and turning the desert into greenery. This is Isaiah saying God is going to break the bands of death in a very poetic way. And here's Abinadi saying it very directly. And then in Mosiah chapter 15, this is the reason I spent so much time talking about the meaning of messenger versus message or good messenger versus good tidings. Um, Because here in Mosiah 15 verses 14 through 18, he talks about uh, who, who those messengers are. These are they who have published peace, all the prophets. Sorry, we can start in verse 13. But are, are not all the prophets, everyone who's opened his mouth to prophesy, uh, they're the seed of God, but they're also they who have published peace. They've brought good tidings, they've published salvation, and they've said unto Zion, thy God reigneth. How beautiful on the mountains were their feet. So those are that's one fulfillment of this messenger. In verse 16, how beautiful, again, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that are still publishing peace. In verse 17, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who shall hereafter publish peace, yea, from this time henceforth and forever. So the fulfillment of this messenger is not just the prophets that existed that have testified of Christ, but anyone publishing peace in Abinadi's day and anyone who will publish peace, the peace that comes through worshiping Jesus from that time henceforth and forever. Now, if you've ever shared the gospel, if you've ever gone on a mission, if you've ever talked about the joy that comes into your life by worshiping Jesus Christ, this applies to you. It's, so, it's such an amazing passage of scripture. He's telling you, you are the good messenger. Uh, and then in verse 18, he says the ultimate fulfillment of this. Behold, I say unto you, this is not all. For how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is the founder of peace. Yea, even the Lord who has redeemed his people. So Jesus Christ as the founder of peace is the ultimate messenger. So he is, now the reason that I that I talked so long about the messenger being where we got the word gospel from is we often talk about the gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ. But as you can see from the original Hebrew and the way that Isaiah intended this to be read, Jesus Christ is the gospel but not, it's more than that. It goes deeper than that. When you and I share the gospel and when we listen to the prophet, they are the gospel and we are the gospel. Isn't that a powerful idea that Jesus Christ, this good messenger, extends to us the capability of carrying that message equally with him? Now, Abinadi continues in this chapter to talk about the the redemption that comes through the atonement from from the dead, that God has power over sin and death. And then in chapter 16, he continues talking about how God is going to bring to pass our own desires. If we want, if we have a desire to do good, God is going to take away all of our sin 
and bring us into the first resurrection and we will be like the suffering servant who's been drinking the dregs of this cup of the wrath of God and will eventually be taken away from us. We'll never have to drink it again. But those who have been oppressing God or who know the commandments and refuse to obey, they're the ones who are going to have to take this cup and drink it to the dregs forever. And in this is the end of chapter 16. Uh, and the, these verses are so powerful that they deserve to be read in their entirety. We're going to start in verse 13. And now ought ye not to tremble and repent of your sins and remember that only in and through Christ ye can be saved. Therefore, if ye teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. No more powerful testimony of Christ, in my opinion, has ever been born than this born by Abinadi in these chapters of Mosiah. And obviously inspired by the wonderful chapters that we studied this week in Isaiah. So it is my testimony that you can learn so much about Jesus Christ from Isaiah. And don't forget to make use of those resources which come to you by nature of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, by nature of living in this time when we have so many other wonderful commentaries available to us. And uh, I'm grateful for the Book of Mormon and for the wonderful testimony of Christ that it gives us, but also for the Book of Isaiah and all that it teaches me about my Savior. And now as we, as we uh, leave you, I'll leave you with, the, with another rendition. This comes from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir version of... Uh, number 38 of the Messiah how beautiful are the feet of them that publisheth peace and I leave my testimony with you of Jesus Christ that he lives that he redeemed us and that salvation comes through him and in no other way in the name of Jesus Christ Amen This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.